Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is David Joyce. David is the head of integrated high performance at the GWS Giants in the AFL in Australia. David is also the co-author with Dan Lewenden of two of the most popular sports performance and rehabilitation books to be published in recent years. And those two books are High Performance Training for Sports and Sports Injury Prevention and Rehabilitation. On this episode, David and I discussed many topics, including, of course, David's background and influences, the good and not so good things that David is currently seeing within the professions of physical preparation and sports rehabilitation. We get into a really deep discussion about two chapters that David co-wrote in the Injury Prevention and Rehabilitation book. He co-wrote one chapter with Dan Lewenden about injury risk profiling, and he co-wrote another chapter with David Butler on pain and performance. David also gives his top advice to all the listeners, and we touch on many more topics throughout the show. This was a great show, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, David Joyce, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to my podcast. Just for the listeners who may not be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine won't be too many people, David, just fill us in on your background. Hi, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm the head of athletic performance for GWS Giants in the uh, Australian Football League. It's the Australian Football Comp or the Elite Australian Football Competition. Uh, we're based in Sydney, um, and my remit is that I work with a team that does all the strength and conditioning, sports science, sports medicine, physio, rehab. Um, massage, nutrition, psychology—you know that that whole sort of support services, I suppose. Um, and it's my job to to lead and, and coordinate and, and work within that framework. Great stuff, great stuff. You, you had some previous roles with other teams before you came to your current one. Who, who else have you been involved with? Yeah, um, I was. I was prior to this role, I was with uh, Western Force in the Super Rugby competition. And um, similar sort of role. And then prior to that, I was working with Team China for the London Olympics. Um, and I've worked in, in professional soccer with Galatasaray and, and Blackburn Rovers and, and with Team GB at the Beijing Olympics as well and Saracens rugby before that. So a bit of a spread across continents and, and different sports as well. So I've been, been pretty lucky with where my adventures have taken me. Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic stuff. Uh, David, a question I, I, I love to always ask all of my guests who come on is who have been the biggest influences on you, both as a professional and as a human? So not just within your profession, so in both, as, in both aspects there as a professional and, and, and in private life. Yeah, look, it's, it's really hard um, for me to, to say that i I'd be anywhere without my parents um, and without my fiancé. Um, there's no way that I'd be able to go from, you know, Australia to to the UK to Turkey to China back to Australia without the support of, of you know, all the people that are nearest and dearest. You just you wouldn't be able to do it without the support, but you also wouldn't be able to do it without the encouragement. So that's, that's really important. But, um, look, I... I'm, I'm lucky that I've got what I call my, my Gandalfs, you know, the people that I really look up to and that are, provide me wise counsel and, you know, a mixture, a mixture of friends. But, you know, I suppose within our industry, I've, I spend a lot of time just shooting the breeze with guys like Darcy Norman and, and um, Nick Winkleman from the States and, and Darren Burgess down here in Australia. And, um, and, I, and I try and do my very best to, to learn from absolutely everyone that I meet, you know. So um, whether they're physios or strength coaches or biomechanists or, um, you know, advertising gurus or military um, generals or, or whatever it is. So um, I, I couldn't say that I'm a product of one person. I'm a, certainly a product of lots of people. Though. And I've got a saying that you, you're the average of the 
the people, the five or five or so people that you spend the most time with. So um, I do my very best to surround myself with some some really great people. Yeah, I think that quote is uh, a credit to Jim Rom. But even though a lot of people have said, it, I know Tim Ferriss also says it, but I think Jim Rom was the original person who said that. Yeah, uh, definitely, it. definitely agree with it, yeah. Um, before we get into the specific topic of this podcast, which is going to center around your two chapters in your latest book, Sports Injury Prevention and Rehabilitation, that you co-edited again with uh, Daniel Lowenden, who uh, was also your co-editor on High Performance Training for Sports. Two fantastic books. Now, I've read High Performance Training for Sports cover to cover, but currently I've just read only four chapters out of the new book because I've just been reading other books. <laughs> so I read your two chapters in preparation for this. I also read Nick's Winkleman's chapter and then... I had a literature review to do on course ability, so I ended up reading Lee Burton and Greg Cook's chapter, which is quite good in that. Um, but before I get into that, just another question I always like to ask everyone that comes on is, in terms of the good and not so good things you're seeing within our profession, so the profession basically of human performance, if you want to call it that, and give that sort of global term, what are, the, what are the good things that you're seeing and what are the not so good things? And with the not so good things, what possible solutions would you offer? Um, well, I suppose the good things is that there's, there's loads of good things going on at the moment. Um, I suppose the biggest round shifting things that are, that are going on uh, revolve around data and analytics, mm. so quantifying what we're doing because I think ultimately the things that make our athletes strong and fast are the things that have always made athletes strong and fast, which is lifting heavy things and running fast, you know. And those things haven't changed for, you know, a thousand years. But the way we monitor it and the, the way we um, can adapt our processes to, to maximise our genetic, you know, capabilities is, is the thing which is, is actually making the most headway at the moment. So... You know, understanding what makes people tired, how how individuals best adapt to a training process is, is um, you know, the stuff that, that really drives me and, and keeps me awake at night trying to work out where's that performance line where under it is under-trained and over it is over-trained leading to the risk of injury and illness. Um, what do we do poorly? Well, I think the thing that breaks me a lot with research is applying means so we'll say, well, we have a look at this team and our average recovery time after a game is three days. Um, or, you know, we, we had a look at a 1,000 rugby players and the average um, vertical jump is 67 centimetres or whatever it is. And the thing that breaks me about that is the reality is the story is not in the average. The story is at either end of the bell curve, yeah. you know, there are going to be people that recover after one day and there are going to be people that recover after five days. I'm more interested in those two things rather than just punching everything in together and, and getting an average because we just lose too much. So the basically research methodology is, what I guess, what I'm driving at there, Robbie. <laughs> I'll, I'll be getting into plenty of that now. Uh, my Masters, I just re recently got into a Masters with, with uh, St. Mary's and one of our modules is obviously, you know, research reviewing and, and statistics, and I've never done statistics before, so I, I put out a, a post there on my Facebook asking the likes of Brian Mann and Matt Jordan and Daniel Martinez and Brett Contreras and a few others about, and uh, Maladin about uh, statistics, and, they, and Patrick Ward, they put all these books back to me, so I'll be getting into a lot more of that now, so I'll probably be able to... Uh, to relate to you a lot more, but I, I know what you mean in the bell curve, yeah, like in, in terms of uh, most uh, research is also to do with means and averages and it never takes into consideration the people at either end of those bell curves, so I can see how that can be a frustration on your part in terms of, you know, rehab and performance. So well, I think the, the, real, the reality is in in athletes, we're not, we're not dealing with averages. Oh, absolutely, know, they're, yeah. They're, by their very nature, are at the extreme ends. So yeah. we actually need to tease apart the, the, you know, what that extreme end looks like. Yeah, big time. Oh, and I, I suppose because a lot of research in terms of sports science, well, up until recently, but a lot of it up until um, recently has been always done with, like, beginners or 
do you know that kind of way so that you're right like if you're dealing with elite athletes so then those means mean very little as in terms of like, you know because you see a lot of this research are like these subjects were untrained so that's always been a big gripe among our profession or, or practitioners in the field but i suppose it's improved over the last few years that um they're, they're starting to realize they need to start taking trained subjects to make the the to make the like the results have more applicability in the practical work because again if you're dealing with elite athletes how critical is research from with beginners subjects it's not at all like so no it's a, it's a good place to start and to give you ideas but you know you you can't just extrapolate those results yeah. to an elite group athletes in the same way that you can't extrapolate that on definitely so getting into your your book your latest book sports injury prevention rehabilitation and if i'm correct i believe actually that was the first book you were con- contracted to do like you were actually meant to do that one before high performance were you high performance yeah. sports is that yeah, correct so, yeah. so um dan and i sort of had this idea of, of doing a, a text to fill in the gap in the in the market which is essentially there's lots of sports medicine texts out there and there's lots of performance texts out there, but, um, you know, the performance texts don't really talk about pathology or injuries, and the injury sports medicine texts don't really talk about performance. So what we aim to do is address that balance because certainly in our field, that's that's where we need it to be. You know, the sports medicine textbooks, a lot of them will just go back to doing the three sets of ten heel raises or, you know, just have a very quick stand on one leg as proprioceptive training or, you know, those sorts of things. So what we wanted to do was actually be, uh, you know, talk about the performance solutions to injury. Um, and so we looked at a couple of different publishers for that and um, Rowledge was the one that we chose and then Human uh, Kinetics said to us, listen, we're, we're really interested in the work that you guys are doing, which you write a book for us as well. And stupidly and naively, we said yes. Um, and I say stupidly and naively because we were doing it at the same time. And doing one book is hard enough, let alone doing two and working the elite sport at the same time. So our, our naivety got the better of us, but we're we're done now, and and we're we're really pleased with the products. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Dan was on the podcast recently, uh, the Historic Forums podcast. And, yeah. uh, and he actually said, he said, he said, don't write a book. <laughs> he said jokingly, he says, uh, my advice to people would be don't write a book. And, uh, but, uh, cause yeah, I, I'd say particularly the sort of book you guys wrote, cause it wasn't just, you know, you two were writing a book between the two of you. You co-edited the book with lots of different contributors. So I can imagine that there are many headaches involved that, but I suppose at the same time, it's also quite rewarding cause they're two fantastic texts. Yeah. Look, it, it, it was great because, um, it was fantastic PD for us in terms of going through it. And you, know, you said that you, you've read High Performance Training for Sports cover to cover, which is fantastic and, mm. and really flattering for us that someone like you would, would do that. But when I must have read it cover to cover probably 18, 19, 20 times just because you're constantly going through it. Um, and so I'm, I'm always referring back to it as well because there is some really, really good content. And the reason we did it in an edited version, as an edited book, I should say, is because not for one moment do I think that I'm the repository of of all the knowledge in this this space. So it it would kind of be silly for me to write a chapter about agility and a chapter about uh, power and a chapter about resilience and a chapter about flexibility. We might as well actually accept our humility and say why don't we get the best people to write about those particular areas so that that was kind of how it came about in that format yeah i mean it's, uh, you can see the the book there can you see that uh, people people always laugh at my little tags i was on jay DeMeo's podcast and i was showing him a book and he laughs at all my tags but i tag i use those little loops and tags and write notes on them because uh I, Whenever I used to use a highlighter like most people, but I would destroy the book. It'd start leaking through pages, and I was like, i got to find a better way. So translucent stick-on flags are what I use now, and I find them much better. But anyway, so if we um, if we get into this chapter that you have in your in the Sports Intervention Rehabilitation book. So you did two chapters. Um, 
yourself and Dan did one together, and then you also did one with the, the famous David Butler, the multicolored David Butler, which we'll talk about after okay. we touch on this one. But the, the first one, the uh, the injury risk profiling process, uh, David, maybe you want to just uh, introduce this concept to the listeners and, and what this chapter was about. Well, what we were trying to do there, Robbie, was actually talk about a strategic way of assessing injury risk because most organisations would agree that, um, you know, you, you want to try and prevent injuries rather than rehab them wherever you can, uh, which makes intuitive and perfect sense. But the manner in which we go about trying to identify what the risk factors are is, is flawed, you know. Mm. So I remember when I started working in sports 20 years ago, whatever it was, you'd have a proformer and you'd have every single joint and you'd have to assess an inflection, extension, rotation and lateral flexion and um, then you'd have to assess the muscles eccentrically and concentrically and you end up by just having so many data points and none of it actually made a lick of difference because what you're trying to do is have a, uh, you know, you're trying to assess for every possible injury that could possibly occur and, you know, you can't even do that for one person, let alone a squad of 25 or 44 or whatever it is that you've got in the squad. So it's just wasted. So what we tried to do is is come up with a, a strategy of, of being able to cut down the, the list of every possible injury that could occur to the injuries that, was most, that were most likely to occur to that particular person based on themselves and based on the activities in which they participate. So if you were to take a handball, for example, you'd have a look at the most common injuries in handball. You'd have a look at their past history of that, that particular player. You'd have a look at the risk factors that they hold because of their age or their gender. And then all of a sudden you've gone from a concept of having an infinite number of injuries to having probably the, the eight injuries that are most likely to occur based on all our knowledge of injury risk factors, and then we can assess specifically for those. Um, and, and certainly in our background, it has been way, way, way more effective at identifying injury risk factors. And the reality is you're always going to miss something. You, know? you will always get an injury that no one's ever had before or that's rare in that sport. Um but the, the, you wouldn't necessarily have had a, a telltale sign of those happening beforehand anyway. So it, it's unrealistic to try and prevent every injury, but if you can, if you can really allocate the resources into the main injuries that are most likely to occur, uh, what we've found is that you have a, a much greater chance of success. Hmm. Um. Just touching on that, so you, you have like a seven-step sort of process uh, to this injury risk profiling, but just before we get to that too, you kind of touched on it there, but it was kind of, and it, this makes intuitive sense, but it was the first time I've seen it sort of worded in this way where you spoke about intrinsic factors versus extrinsic factors, and again, you kind of touched on it there with intrinsic being the you know, gender, age, and stuff like that, but just maybe for the listeners, just maybe just touch on these intrinsic and extrinsic factors in terms of injury mechanism, just so we have a little more context for the rest of the chapter. Yeah, well, so intrinsic risk factors mean the, the risk factors that you hold as an individual because of who you are. Yeah. You know, they might be your past injury history. Yeah, if you, We know that if you've had a hamstring injury, you're more likely to have another hamstring injury. So that's something which is inherent to yourself. Equally, it might be age. So the older you get, the more likely you are to get degenerative tendinopathies. Or it might be gender. So if you're female, you're more likely to get an ACL injury in your knee. So they're your intrinsic risk factors. Your extrinsic risk factors are things that relate to potentially the sport. So if you're in a sprint, if you're a sprinter, you're more likely to get muscle injuries because of the nature of the sport. So that's that's because of the forces that are applied to the body. So they're your extrinsic risk factors. Or it might be you're more likely to get concussed in taekwondo because, you know, it's a sport where you get kicked in the head. So that's an extrinsic risk factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And I think also within the chapter, you even spoke about, you can start getting into more detail in terms of position specific, in terms of the, uh, yes, yeah, like the difference between, uh, in rugby, like, I think here you have, um, there's a higher risk of shoulder instability in the five and eight position compared to winger and rugby. So even position, position specific, there's differences in, in the types of injuries as well, which is also very interesting. And that's, and, that's kind of getting back to a similar concept of what I talked about in terms of research. You know, we can't just clump everything together. Yeah. Uh, so a rugby player is not a rugby player. A rugby player, a prop has got a very different force mechanism or, you know, the, the loads and the forces that the, that the prop is asked to absorb is very, very, very different to what a, um, a halfback or a, or a an outside winger yeah. would be, you know, asked to absorb. So you can't just say, on average, um, rugby players get back injuries and knee injuries. You've got to say, well, the most common injuries in a in a prop are going to be a calf injury and a neck injury. So they're the things we need to look at because props, by and large, don't tend to get hamstring injuries because they don't run fast enough. Yes. In the same way that neck injuries are not as prevalent in an outside back because they don't, they're not involved in the scrub. Is that to say that they will never get a neck injury or a prop will never get a hamstring injury? Of course not. But if you're going to allocate your resources to trying to identify risk factors, they're the baskets you put in. Mm, yeah, big time. Yeah. And you I mean you can even see that if you look at a GPS of like a, a prop versus a winger, I mean it's a completely different distribution as well because of the, the roles they play. It's almost a different sport. Yeah. So that's why you actually need to be strategic about it, and that's why one, you know, one screening process for every player in a in a sport just simply doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, as I said, you have this seven-step process in this in this chapter in uh, in terms of injury risk profiling. You maybe just want to bring us through each of these seven steps and just give a quick, or not a quick summary, but a summary on each, and you can get as in depth as you want here. Now I know you've kind of started touching some of them, but I suppose get into your 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 uh, generic warning index and then get into your specific warning index and determining factors. And then I really like the the step of selecting assessments, and you had this sort of three-tier process. Of how you might actually select applicable assessments in terms of their reliability and validity, and then the movement proficiency results and review. So if you just maybe want to get into that, it's uh, I, I find I find to be honest, and I said to this see offline, I found it a really 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 good chapter. You know, I suppose sometimes you can read some chapters like off screening and is it the same all same all? You know, we do an FMS and then we do some sport specific screening or something like that or. Sometimes you read some chapters on course ability, like, is there anything going to be good on this? And sometimes you get surprised. So I, I, I found it a brilliant chapter. And it was actually quite funny, too, because a friend of mine has to do a module on screening in his master's. And I said, you know what? I just read a chapter this morning. I think you'll really like it. So I, I sent him on some stuff, and I said I sent, sent Tom to get the book as well. So, But, uh, yeah, so you hopefully you have another little sale there, Finn. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so if you want to... Yes, if you want to get into those seven steps, uh, Dave, that'd be great. Yeah, so um, I suppose like to, to probably narrow it down a little bit, I, a better way of looking at it is, is saying, well, you you, you want to you want to look at the injuries that are most likely to occur for that individual. So so we have uh, what we call the generic warning index. So the generic warning index, are the things which are the injuries that are most likely to occur in that group of, of, um, of players or athletes, that population. And we know that we can establish that by looking at the literature of, of um, injury rates or you might have your own um, you might have your own injury records based on previous seasons and those sorts of things. But the most important there is, thing there is to make sure that you're comparing apples with apples. So... Um, you know, you, if you're dealing with uh, elite soccer players, elite soccer players may have a, a, a different injury profile to recreational soccer players. So you need to make sure that the, the literature that you're looking at is comparable to your group in the same way that um, 
over 50 runners are going to have a different injury profile to um, adolescent runners. So you, you want to really make sure that you're, you're comparing appropriate populations. And that's going to give you um, a broad sense of the injuries that are most of concern for you. And you're looking there at the injury incidence, but also the injury severity. And the, the really important things there are um, a, a cork thigh or a dead leg or a charlie horse or whatever it is that you call it, a bruise to the thigh, is one of the most common injuries that you can get. But is it one of the most severe? No, you know, you might miss a game, you might miss two, but generally speaking, you don't miss uh, um, training sessions or, or competitions from a dead leg. So whilst it's of high incidence, it's of low severity. Mm. But then you might have something like a, a shoulder dislocation or a, an ACL rupture in the knee, which is, is low incidence but high severity. So you kind of need to have a pragmatic look at, at both of those things and go, well, what's, what's responsible for most days lost? If you're in a sport like rowing, um, and if you're a rower and you do your ACL, you're going to be out for six to nine months. Um, yeah, probably, probably a little bit less for a rower. So there's a, there's a big cost to that, but rowers just really don't get ACL injuries. So there's probably not a lot of point spending a lot of time scrutinising injury, ACL risk in, in, in rowers. Um, but rib stress fractures is a big thing. So we put a lot of our our resources into looking at that and and you know low back issues and the like. So that's that's the generic warning index. And then the step the second step is is individualising that. So that's what we call the specific warning index. Um, so you, basically, to start with, you've gone with uh, every injury that could occur. You've narrowed that down to maybe four or five that are most likely to occur. On top of that, you, you add the things which are most likely to occur for that particular individual, and that's based on the things that we talked about, the intrinsic risk factors. So if you've had a hamstring injury before, you're more likely to get another one. So we might add that to the generic warning index. If you've had um, you know, a cervical disc blowout, you're more likely to get neck pain. So we might add that in, You know, those sorts of things. So that's, that's individualising it. That's the specific warning index. Um, then what we need to do is actually, if they look at the, the most the injuries that are most likely to occur, then we need to determine the risk factors for those things. So, um, you know, we know that a, a groin injury, excuse me, a, a common risk factor for groin injuries in, in kicking populations is um, hip internal rotation loss mm. or a, a reduction in groin squeeze strength and those sorts of things. So... That's a case of actually having to look through the literature and go, well, what are the telltale signs for these injuries? What are the things that we can possibly modify? Um, because ultimately that's why we're trying to do this, isn't it? You know, we're, It's one thing being able to identify the risk factors, but actually what we're employed to do is to modify those risk factors. So what are the things that we can modify? Um, we're, we're kind of getting a better idea of it, of, how, of what these risk factors are, uh, but I think over the next 10 years, that's where we're going to see a huge growth in our industry is to say, well, we thought that it was a reduction in knee-to-wall uh, range that caused, that predisposed someone to knee injuries, but we can see that it's only that plus a reduction in hip internal rotation plus um, a pre, you know, predisposing injury profile or, or whatever. So there's going to be a combination of these various things that are put together. Mm. So that helps us um, identify the, the modifiable risk factors. Um, and then, of course, we've got to select the appropriate tools to assess them. And they're, they're the things that you talked about earlier in terms of a valid assessment tool, a reliable assessment tool. So by that, I guess the easiest way to think about it is a a valid test is is one that actually measures the thing that we want it to measure. So to give an extreme ex example, if we want to uh, assess the integrity of an elbow, elbow joint, it wouldn't be a valid test to examine the knee because it wouldn't tell us anything about the elbow. Um, but 
So, you know, we need to actually have a look at what the validity of those tests that we're doing for that joint or that injury uh, is. Um, uh, probably a more realistic one might be, you know, is surface EMG for hamstrings, is that valid? Is that a valid assessment tool for looking at hamstring risk factors or hamstring injury risk factors? And you'd probably make a fairly strong argument that it's not. Whereas having a look at eccentric strength has been shown in multiple uh, studies to be a valid assessment tool. But we also need it to be reliable. So the results that I get today are going to be the same as the results I get tomorrow, but equally the results I get today are going to be the same results as what you would get. So that's reliability. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the how you apply the test um, is, a, is another form of validity. So whether you're securing all the, the appropriate joints, whether you're doing it in a, a reproducible way. Um, I think the next step um, for memory is, is looking at movement proficiency, is how well someone moves. And as coaches, that's probably what we're good at. Um, it's not just um, looking at someone doing an overhead squat or, um, you know, their landing profile on the force plate, they're all movement proficiency things. But what, what we do as strength coaches is actually have a look at how someone moves uh, in a squat or what their running technique is like or what their cutting technique is like. Um, that they're, they're really important things that we're, we're really good at. The, the FMS, for example, is purports to be an assessment of movement competency. So where the FMS falls down as an entire package is it hasn't taken any account of the sport-specific nature of things, but equally it hasn't taken account of the previous four steps that I've described. Um, that's not to say that it doesn't have its use, but of course, um, you know, there's no one tool which is going to be appropriate for every single person. Um, and then finally, what do we do with the information that we get? So you can see how the process should be a little bit different for you as it would be for me, according to your injury risk profile and, and sports that you play compared to the sports that I play, my age, you know, these sorts of things. Um, so we should have a slightly different assessment for, I suppose, um, but it should have a very strong central theme about how we've gone about getting that. And then, of course, it's there's no point having these these data points or these results without actually following up on it and doing something about it and trying to reduce those modifiable risk factors and then reviewing it and going back and going, right, well, have, have our interventions worked? Has the strength program for our, um, for our hip flexors, has that worked on this particular player who we thought hip flexor weakness was a, pre, a predisposer to low back pain, for example? So it's a... It's a continuous process of, of development and refining for that individual. And, of course, that individual's risk process, risk profile changes over the course of his or her career as well. So it's an organic and, and movable document. In, in terms, then, in a group uh, or team situation, how are you logistically giving players their sort of individual things to work on? How does that process? Is it is it do you do like a pre season screening with all your players? And of course, right. So, you know, if you're within that sort of one one sport, again, say soccer, we know hamstring and groin are going to be a big thing across the board for most most of the players. But then when you get to more of their specific needs due to their specific limitations, their intrinsic factors, how does that look, or how do you put that package together? Yeah, and there's a different. There's many different ways that you can do it, and there's many different ways that I've tried to do it. Um, but essentially what, what we do um, is a, some of our physiotherapy team and strength and conditioning team, we all sit together as part of our what's called our APU, so Athletic Performance Unit, yeah. And, yeah. and we go through each player and we have a look at their screening results and we say, well, what do we need to do to modify this person's risk profile? Um and they've all got their individual correctives to work on. They get adapted and moulded over time. The most important thing is that it's not just delivered, it's coached. 
mm. and that it's adapted and, and and progressed. So no one would expect their gym program to stay exactly the same, like doing three sets of four bench presses at uh, 100 kilos. You wouldn't expect that a program would do that on day one, but also do it on day 50, day 100, day 200, and day 300. Surely you would expect some fluctuation in that. And it's exactly the same with the injury risk um, robustness sessions that we do as well. So it needs to be adapted and, and moved and progressed and modified according to according to the player. So, you know, those things are, are continually evolving uh, programs in the same way that every other program evolves and moves. You also spoke towards the end of the chapter about um, that these, uh, you know, how often should they perform that? And you spoke about that some teams nowadays do these sort of daily readiness type screens like adductor squeezes or like leg raises. I know that um, Jason Cameron with the Irish rugby squad, he does something very similar, like a, a daily sort of yep. uh, assessment. I think one of the, you know, leg raise and like, I think other people might do like a grip test and, you know, for if it's a grind, if grinds are a big thing in sport, they might do like the squeeze test. Is there things you implement with your guys on a, on a daily basis in terms of that? Yep, so we, we have a look at their um, their wellness, so how well they slept, what their energy is like, um, any soreness, those sorts of things that the players punch into their phone every day. Uh, and once they get in, they will, they'll do a, a, a screening battery, if you like. It might be a slump test, a, a groin squeeze. Now, if you're in our groin injury group, uh, groin risk group, we'll do a groin squeeze in three different positions. But if you're not, we'll just do it in one position. Um, we'll have a look at Thomas tests because that's an important um, thing for us with quads because we're a kicking sport. So we want to make sure that someone's not reducing their range there. Um, sit and reach, left, right, and bilateral, um, and knee to wall. So some of those things we, we don't need to do every day. But at the moment, what we're doing is we're collecting a, a whole heap of data and then we'll be able to go, well, what don't we need to collect every day? Um, if you're a patella tendon or a hamstring or a um, Achilles tendon risk, so that there'll be an individualised screening thing for them. So uh, all up, a screen should take an individual player no more than five minutes, yeah. and all it does is give us an idea of how the athlete is tracking, how they're responding to their loads, and, and whether we need to modify anything with them. With something like the Thomas test there, or any of those joint range of motions, are, are you like taking out an old school goniometer there, or are you just using like something on the iPhone to look to, to see like is there a change in range of motion on a day to day basis? Uh, no, we're not, and we're probably being a little bit unscientific, and that's why we don't try and publish these results. But equally, we don't try and put a um, a value to it either. So what we will do is say it's normal, or it's um, it's worse than normal. And the reason we do that is because it is just a screen. So if it's worse than normal, then that provides us with the opportunity to investigate it further and go, well, well why is it less than normal? And then that's when the physios get involved and go, right, well, this is what we need to do to fix it. Um, but if you think about it being a multi-joint movement, um, you know, it involves... Uh, hip extension on one side, hip flexion on the other side, um, it, it requires perfect back position, all these sorts of things. There are too many variables to keep perfectly still for us to get really good valid measures on um, for 43 players. So if we can't get valid measures on it in a timely manner, then I don't try and get measures on it because I think it's the wrong thing. We've just been looking at numbers in a poor way. So all I want to know is whether it's 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 good, bad, or indifferent, and then if it's if it's bad, then then we investigate further. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've got to you've got to be pragmatic and get about these whole numbers. Then you've got to do it properly. If you do it, if you claim to be scientific, you've got to accept that it's dirty science and it's indicative only, um, and used as a way to 
initiate further conversations or investigate further. Great stuff. Great stuff. Another, uh, just another little add-on to this chapter, we'll wrap up on this chapter just for the listeners. You, you put in a lovely case study um, about a uh, eight-year-old female uh, soccer player and you kind of went through how her whole um, profiling process looks, which is really, really good. So it kind of wrapped up the chapter nicely to see, you know, right here were the underlying principles or thought processes behind and here's how it might look in the real world. So that was a really, really good uh, aspect of the chapter. So just for the listeners, yeah. when, you, when you check it out, it's good to see it then. It kind of brings it more to light. Yeah, the, the whole purpose behind the book is that it is uh, applicable, you know, and it can only be applicable if we can show how the concepts relate to the working environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so I've a, I've a really good friend of mine, Tommy Brennan, who's a phys- physiotherapist here in Ireland. Well, phys- physio, physical therapist. Uh, and he's a really, really good dude. He, you know, he, he's to me, he's in that five percent who just loves his. He's just loves his 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 uh, his field. He's so passionate. You know, he's a guy that does every continuing education. He always wants the best for his athletes and. He's big into pain science at the moment, so uh, if I if I didn't get into your pain and performance chapter with David Butler, he would uh, he wouldn't be too uh, impressed. But uh, so I, I went over this chapter yesterday, highlighted, it, got got stuff out of it that I really wanted to ask. So first off, um, maybe just because uh, David Butler is a pretty well known guy when it comes to pain, how how did you get to know David? Um, he's one of the cleverest people I've ever met. He's someone that I really look up to, and I probably should have mentioned him when you asked me at the beginning. Uh, so Dave fundamentally changed my concept or thinking around pain. So my background was initially as a, as a physio and a sports physio. So when I did my master's in sports physio way back when, he was the lecturer in a, in a pain subject. Cool. And... Um, it really shifted my paradigm of what pain was. So I've been bugging him ever since over the last, oh God, however many years that is, sort of 15 years, and we've we'll, we'll become, become pretty tired. And, um, yeah, he's, he's an outstanding mind, absolutely outstanding mind. It was a real honour and, and privilege that he had agreed to, to write this chapter with me. So the first thing I uh, want to ask you about is this idea as pain as an output of the brain. Um, And it was just a a really good section in that chapter where, you know, the basic concept you were getting is most of us think that pain is an input. So, you know, I I bang my leg off something and then that input is going to my brain and that's the pain where I think the real message you're trying to get across in this chapter, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that, it's it's the brain's perception of, of pain is what we're trying to understand here. So maybe touch on, you know, pain is more of an output of the brain rather than a, a peripheral input. Yeah, well, it's not so much the brain's perception of pain. It's it's um, it's the brain's perception of danger or threat. Okay. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. It is, it is an output because there are some, essentially what there is is there's no perception, which is, um, you bang your leg, as you, as you say, and the information goes up to your brain. Your brain will then decide whether it is worthy to give you um, this experience, which is pretty unpleasant, deliberately so, to either tell you to get help, okay? So you you go and see your physio or see your doctor and go, geez, you know, excuse me, you know what, I think it might be broken. I need to do something about it or to make you change your behaviour. So if if it didn't hurt when you banged your leg, you may be tempted to not take as much care when you're walking around the table again. And so, you know, it's, it's, it changes your behaviour. It, it teaches you a lesson of, you know what, Robbie, don't bang your bloody leg against the table chair because there's only going to be one, one winner there, mm. the table leg. Um, so, but... The complex nature of it is that the, the information goes up to the brain, then the brain has to determine whether it is worthy enough of that output, and that output is pain. So there are some things which, you know, you would have had this, the experience of being in the shower and you look down and you go, how do I get that bruise? 
So there has been clearly something's happened. There's, there's evidence, there's physical evidence of tissue damage. You know, there's bleeding in your leg or whatever. But the information's gone up to the brain. The brain's gone, you know what, Robbie? You don't need to worry too much about this. I'm not going to... You, you just walked into, you know, a, the edge of a coffee table or I'm not going to bother you with pain. Okay? Um, but equally, there are times where um, you, you're in a lot of pain because, you know, you've got a headache or whatever and, and your brain is saying, geez, get, go and have... Go and have some water. You know, you might have a dehydration headache or something. You know, that's that's your brain telling you to do something. So it's pretty sophisticated, you know. And but sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes the brain processes things wrong, and not just the brain, but the entire central nervous system processes it wrong. And it's our job to sort of understand when it's doing the right thing, when it's doing the wrong thing, and, and what we can do about it. So. Yeah, that's, that's a real short, very, very, very brief tour of pain and, um, and worthy of much further explanation than just listening to, to me talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, I, I love the example you gave in the chapter about the bruise. You, ha- like you made it kind of little, like a, a side note. You were like saying, we all, we've all experienced discovering a bruise on our arm but not remembering uh, the incident that caused it and obviously you know there's evidence of tissue damage but the brain obviously didn't consider it to be much of a threat and he also kind of mentioned similar to in, in sport and this has happened to me I don't know if you're familiar with the Irish sports hurling but you know yeah. uh, you know I've often um, <laughs> I actually can remember in the middle of a game I was I was playing I was we were playing a game of hurling this a few years ago and, and uh, everyone kept coming come up to me after the game and they kept going how's your leg and I was like my leg's fine. Why? And go like someone broke a hurley across the back of your leg in the second half. Did you not feel it? And I was like, no, didn't feel it at all. Like you know, so like someone had literally like a hurley, like a, which is a for listeners that don't know this, other Australian listeners or American listeners, you have to go YouTube. But a hurley is like a very robust wooden stick to hit a, a fairly hard ball, and one was broken in two across the back of my calf in the game. And I didn't feel it at all. Like so, obviously, my brain didn't even like. Whereas, if you had seen that visually, like if you seen someone break a hurley across your leg visually, I I nearly imagine that visual input would have triggered some sort of threat response from the brain nearly, you know, or would have changed sort of made the environment of it. But I didn't even feel it. Yeah, exactly. It's the same reason that a a paper cut only hurts if you see blood. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny. Uh, can you maybe touch on the neural matrix and neural signatures? You had a little piece on that, and just maybe explain those concepts to, to the listeners. Well, the, the neural matrix and neural signatures, neural tag, there. It's basically a concept that that Dave Butler and Laura Mosley came up with, which is everyone's individualized um, sort of pattern of, of pain output. So there, there are various parts of the brain which are involved in pain processing um, that, that are, that's different for everyone. So it's the reason why there are multiple studies where people have maybe tried to ablate or destroy a part of brain tissue that might be responding poorly to or might, might be firing off and, and causing a pain experience. It's why it, it doesn't work because everyone's signature is so multimodal, you know, there's a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, and they all interconnect, which for anyone that's studied the way the brain works is probably not a surprise. Um, but, it, but it is different in everyone. So, um, for example, there are people that have been burnt in house fires that can feel pain when they smell smoke. And... The reason is quite clever, you know. It's you smell smoke. The brain says, "Danger, danger! I'm going to give you a bodily sensation which changes your behaviour, which is to run away or you know to do something about it because we don't want you to go through the, the burns again." So we know that the olfactory sense, which is the the, the nose, um, that area of the brain will light up for that particular individual when they smell smoke. Um, Equally, you might feel um, uh, more pain 
when you get hit by a, a cricket ball than you would with a you know a different type of ball if you've had a bad experience with a cricket ball. Mm. So it's all different and it all depends on the, the context and the environment that the individual is in at that particular time. So the, the neuromatrix basically um, looks at the the senses of the brain which are involved in that pain output for that person at that time. One, um, it's just going to echo my end. One, one thing of the, the neuro tag and the, this idea again of the, the neuro matrix and neuro signatures, there was a, a sentence here on page 226, um, but the microglia and the um, uh, astrocytes, which I found very interesting, you know, saying that they are essentially uh, danger surveillance cells as well as players in learning and, the plas and plasticity. And they react temporarily and may remain experienced and on alert many uh, on alert for many months after injury, and then it says even years. So like that that was uh, that was a very interesting uh, line. So that that the even though that the pain has gone, basically like these areas in your brain can stay on red alert. So obviously as a rehabilitation um, professional. The idea is to take away that threat to the brain now when you're bringing athletes back, obviously, to a previous injury. Because you, you've often probably seen this yourself where, you know, if someone comes back with an ACL, but they still, you can still see that they're guarding that leg in some way or there's still a perceived threat to the brain. So how do you go about then taking that sort of threat away? Um, well, it's, it's graduated exposure, I suppose. First of all, you need to educate the... The, the athlete or the person about um, what the injury is and um, you know the, the the ramifications of it and, and be very clear about those sorts of things. Yeah. I think that's really really important. And then um, you know that that immediately de-threatens the the issue. So that that's really important. Um, but then you know you just got to expose the the, the person to to more and more stimulus that, that de-threatens it. So if someone is really scared of, of um, let's just say, jumping and landing from a particular height because they're a skier and they hurt their knee or hurt their back when they were doing that, um, you start off with, with low jumps and then progress to increasingly high ones. So that's it's just not only is it reconditioning the tissue, but it's reconditioning the brain to say, um, okay, well, we've, we've done that, let's go a little bit higher, a little bit higher, a little bit higher. So it's not um, putting that person in a threatening environment to start with. And if we think about how we would do a rehab program, we let's just say for a, I don't know, a, a calf strain or a hamstring strain, we, we wouldn't get them running flat out to start with because we think that the tissue is not ready for that, and that's fine. Um, so we would... You know, we might do some jogging and then we might do some, some running and then we might do some sprinting and then we might do some acceleration and then we might do some change of direction work and then we do it under fatigue and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're, what we're doing is effectively um, exposing the tissue to increasing stress, but actually what we're also doing is increasing the brain or the exposure of the brain to those particular stresses as well. So we're calming down the, the matrix. Uh, I mean, if you if you even think about like that in terms of strength training, like a part of getting stronger is actually dampening down the perceived threat to the central nervous system as well, because there's a thing called neural inhibition in terms of you know your galgi tendon organs and your muscle spindles. Like, so your central nervous system, ha, uh, you, like so neural inhibition is your central nervous system's um ability to diminish our true force out, output capabilities and what we try to do through strength training is to diminish that neural inhibition so it's similar you're, you're trying to tell your brain oh it's okay to let me put this load through my tissues in terms of strength yeah. development so it's pretty much the same that in rehab you're trying to tell the brain again that it's okay to allow this process to happen absolutely yeah so uh just one or two more final questions um and there's one i i know that that Tommy Brennan, who I mentioned, my friend, would really love to get your thoughts on. And we've spoken about this at length, and you actually do touch on this in your book, um, is the language we use with our athletes, particularly injured athletes. 
So like Tommy taught me a very kind of, uh, or brought, brought, brought to my awareness a very sort of interesting concept where if I had an injured athlete, you know, I would always ask the athlete, oh, how, how's your leg or how's your back or thinking that I was, you know, being, um, like I was connecting with them on a human level, you know, being interested in their welfare. Whereas Tommy kind of said, while, while like that's applaudable what you're doing, you need to be very careful because you're keeping it in their mind that they're sort of like damaged or like, you know, that they, they have this, they get this idea that like, well, my left leg is always, there's always something wrong with that left leg. Or if you keep asking, how's the leg? How's that? Like Tommy would try and word it in like, are you feeling good? Are you feeling strong? He'd never even bring it up or, you often hear like some people say, "Oh, do it on your good leg, don't do it on your bad leg." Like the, the, yeah. so, the language we use with our athletes in terms of rehab, and then even when they're back playing, like so, in ter- in terms of how to interact with with athletes in rehab, like w- what would you recommend? And and in terms of our language to our athletes in terms of rehab, what would you what would your take be? Uh, I think Tommy's right in that you always want to be emphasising the things that they can do. Um, and I'll never describe something as being a good leg or a bad leg yeah, or a good yeah. shoulder or a bad shoulder. Um, I'll, I'll just call it left or right. Um, and, and I think that's really important too. And, and in the same way that you, you don't want to be overly making a fuss or, um, you know, constantly rubbing a particular injury or, or, or whatever because you're just constantly reinforcing to that brain that there is something wrong. Mm. You know, and it's hard for the brain to forget it if they're always getting asked about it. And ultimately what we want to do is de-threaten the environment and and um, um, and, and kind of make the brain forget about it to a certain extent, you know, or at least to forget about it in a conscious level. So, you know, what, what you may be saying there is, is absolutely spot on. And just a, a kind of a final area I want to touch on too is um, you have a, a section in this chapter called All Pain Experiences Personal. So, again, you're kind of getting to this idea of, of sort of, you know, perception of pain. And, and I suppose you kind of touch on this then later on in, a, in the next section where, you know, you're saying some athletes are quote-unquote seen as soft. By, by some of the management team and um, because they're always carrying a knock or a, or a legal how do you first of all how do you deal with these subjective pain reports in in not in knowing that you know pain is personal to the individual and then secondly how do you address or have you addressed or if this has ever come up so far in your career you know the sort of manager who's or the head of the head of the team who who just sees this particular athlete as just like soft or weak because there's always something wrong with them um and then with athletes who do seem to have a lot of innocuous issues how much of that do you think is psychological or or or, or like you know why do you think that comes about like uh, i know there's some top roles that it's like a safety net so if you if an athlete doesn't play well they'll say oh well i had a knock or you know it's, it's kind of a, a safety net some people can have or there's obviously a lot more than just physiological processes. There's a whole psychological area to this as well. So the, the two-part question that is like, how are you using um, subjective reports of pain, and then how are you dealing with issues where managers think that someone is soft, basically? Yeah, two two huge issues there. So um, I, I put the the pain reporting squarely on the the athletes and it's their responsibility. So I'll say, I'll say, I'm really sore. And I go, okay, but are you safe? They go, yeah, I'm safe. Okay, all right, let's play on me. Okay. So that, that's that, that's a really important thing. Are you sore or uh, and are you safe? Um, and if they say I'm not safe, then we, we look at it and we go, well, we actually think you are. Or no, we agree. You know, this is we need to pull back here. And that's that's really important. And it's it's not framing it then in a way of, of pain being the deciding factor, it's safety being the deciding factor. And there's, there's no question that some people feel pain more than others or some people are more tight, you know, more in tune with their body than others. Um, there's absolutely no question about that. So a lot of it gets down to knowing your players and actually desensitising them to certain, like, 
if their um, left glute lead is 2% tighter than their right glute lead and, you know, they're always wanting hands-on therapy for it and, you know, the reality is in a sport like ours and Australian rules, you, you can't get that, you know. There, there are times where you have to say, you're okay, you're safe, get on with it. And sometimes the players just need a bit of licence with that. So as, uh, you know, strength coaches or physios, we can make that worse by continually putting our thumbs in their bums or whatever it is to, to loosen off their tightness or, you know, whatever, um, can actually reinforce the, the issue. What we're trying to build is, is mentally and physically resilient people that can deal with um, slightly less than optimal situations. Um, and then in terms of the second part of the question uh, with the, the, the coaches or, or managers, one of the most important conversations that I have with them is explaining pain and getting them to understand the pain is an output and um, there are some people that need a little bit of more love, a little bit more love and some people that, that actually need to, to be pushed out. So... Um, it's always a tough one because because pain is so individual and, and what the manager may feel as being sore um, is not necessarily what the player is and and the you know the manager's own influence or filter that they have for a particular player also influences their thoughts as well. So you know if their star player they can't afford to lose says that I'm a little bit tight, then the coach is more likely to say. No, pull him out, pull him out, we can't afford to lose him. Whereas if it's, you know, the, the 45th player on your list that's saying he's a little bit tight, the head coach is more likely to say, oh, tell him to, to toughen up, you know, put, and put him straight out. So there's there's a continual need for education and, and, and conversation with the head coaches in regard to what paid actually is and, and how it, it's not necessarily a, a good way of making decisions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I've seen, uh, like, in, in some cases, I think, too, like, it's uh, it can be a coping mechanism for some athletes, you know, to kind of have these constant niggles or, again, where, where it goes back to, like, you know, sort of the pressure to perform. Like, uh, I often see with even, like, juvenile players, um, because they seem to be getting so, so, such pressure from their parents and the coaches, like, to perform well. And then they kind of just end up, like, hate hating the sport and then they kind of keep coming going oh uh my back is sore this is sore not saying that it's not necessarily but i think sometimes it is necessary it could it can turn into a coping mechanism for an athlete and then that can be a team throughout their career then as we all was sort of on the physio table and saying that that's at them that's at them when really and then again I'm not saying that 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 because again we, you don't really know what's going on unless you could physically get inside someone else's body but I, 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 I certainly see, I sometimes see it as a coping mechanism for more of a psychological aspect from like, because they seem to be under such psychological stress from external factors, again, of parents and, uh, you know, their, 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 their managers and their teammates to always perform well and always perform well. And, you know, sometimes it's just, a, as I said, a coping mechanism, but it's just interesting to get your take, but definitely education on pain is, is definitely a huge thing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, David, that, that's that's basically that's what I want to keep you for because I know it's getting it's getting uh, well it's the evening time there and you probably want to get some dinner and I still have to have my breakfast here in Ireland so and I have to, I have to go too but that was a fantastic hour I'd love to get you back on when I reread uh, the chapters in high performance training for sports because and uh, you actually said a really interesting thing on a previous podcast about a yo-yo test because you're you're one of your chapters on movement efficiency and you were saying that a question you always propose to people is what does a yo-yo test test and, and everyone goes aerobic capacity and you're like that's one thing it tests but it also tests movement efficiency which i was like that's a very intriguing concept to look at that so i definitely want to get you back on to talk about movement efficiency because i know that's a very passionate topic of yours um so but uh, just for before we wrap up where can people get in contact with you david if, if they wanted to know more and you also have a very interesting twitter page with the team you're currently with too so maybe touch on that yes um People, if they need to email me, it's david.joyce at gwsgiants.com.au um, or Twitter is at davidgjoyce. And but our our work one, which is which is also good, we're, we're um, our athletic performance unit at the 
Johns does some really great things that we, we share out to people in the community. So that's at Giants underscore APU. Yes, and it's a really, really uh, fantastic resource. It's, uh, it's very, you know, it's great to see such transparency from uh, a top quality organisation like yourselves. So that's a great, uh, a great resource for sure. And just in terms of your book, I mean, people can pick it up through the usual resources. Amazon's probably the best place, is it? Oh, it's probably the, the cheapest and the easiest, I would say, yeah. But I think most, like, it's in uh, high performance training for sports is, it should be in, in most of your big bookstores, you know, your Waterstones or your your Dimmicks in Australia or, or, or whatever around the world. And, and sports intervention rehab is uh, probably a little bit more, not so much niche, but it's more of a academic text that's found in academic booksellers, but both the... Uh, very easily found on Book Depository or Amazon. Great stuff. And Great uh, stuff. finally, David, any uh, any parting advice for any any of the listeners? So, what what would your top advice be to any of the listeners? Uh, top advice. And it can be uh, it can be any any type of advice. So it could life advice, uh, you know, and also maybe touching on some resources there if you have any good resources for people. I reckon the the most important things are to surround yourself with really good people that constantly challenge and stretch you. So I'm, I'm really lucky that the people that I work with do that. Um, but I'm constantly seeking new challenges and, and people that stimulate my thinking. So whether I'm reading a book about creativity or reading a book about leadership or reading a book about, I don't know, supply chain management, I'm always trying to get new different ideas and how I can apply them to, to what we do in sport. Um, so looking outside your particular niche area I reckon is really really important and and surrounding yourself with great people you know is is far and away the most important thing that you can do in life great stuff great stuff okay David Joyce that was an absolute pleasure thank you so much for for taking uh, just over an hour out of your evening I'm definitely going to have you back on because I have a few more questions I definitely want to ask, and I want to get into your chapters in your high performance training for sports books. So, um, or high performance training for sports. So, uh, thanks so much for for taking the time. If you just maybe just wait on an extra thirty seconds while I wrap up, and we can say our goodbyes offline. So, uh, guys, what an absolutely great uh, podcast with David Joyce. Uh, it's something we've been trying to set up for the last few weeks, if not a few months. Uh, definitely check out his books. I'll put them in the show notes. So you guys can just click on the link and, and uh, definitely get them. They're absolutely worth getting. Everyone knows I'm a bookworm and I've read uh, High Performance Training Sports cover cover. Once I finish my uh, book by Ian Jeffries and Jerry Moody, The Strength Initial for Sports Forms, I'll definitely read Sports Intervention Rehab cover cover too. So guys, thanks a million for listening. Keep downloading the podcast and, and uh, keep sharing it around. And if you can, leave a review. But for now, I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care and stay strong. Mm-hmm.